Welcome to Improv Interview. I am so excited today to have one of the legendary names in improvisational theater, Mr. Howard Jerome in Canada. And, and Howard is one of the pioneers of improv. In the past, he's been an actor, professional wrestler, public speakers, public speaker, a Buddhist, a nudist, and a hippie. Not former hippie, I don't think. You may have seen him in Dudley Kravitz, the, music, the musical. He's also been in Barney's, uh, Barney's Virgin. Virgin. Yeah, Naked Lunch, Lucky Number, Slevin, Goon, 350 Days About Wrestling, and Puppets Who Kill. Uh, he was born and raised in Brooklyn in the same neighborhood as Zero Mostel and Mel Brooks. And he's recently become a rapper. And to quote... I've whirled like a thermos. I've worked with Ed Mervish. Don't mean to make you nervous. I wear the red string, but that's a whole other thing. In addition to Howard, we have the other wonderful, beautiful man, Michael Golding. Michael is an improviser and teacher and was the mentor was mentored by David Shepard. And he has a wonderful book called Listen Harder. And there's actually a GoFundMe for uh, Michael right now because he's trying to get enough money to get his book together on the history of his life with David Shepard and maybe once in a while Howard Jerome. So how's that for an intro? I'm thankful to, I'm thankful to be alive, first of all. I just drove 10 hours from uh, the Improv University, so I'm grateful to be anywhere. I can't even believe, 10 hours, I can't even believe that. Uh, me neither. It said seven hours. Google lied to me again. It's not the first time that a woman has lied to me, but that's another story. Uh, so, Howard, I listed only a few of your amazing credits. There are so many of them, but I think I'd like to talk about your history in improv. And, Michael, I'm inviting you to interrupt Howard whenever you want to. Right, Howard? Yes, and yes, again. I'll interrupt right from the start. I'd like to add that I was also mentored by Howard because I met Howard and David at the same time. In fact, I met Howard's disembodied voice first on the responsive scene, then David. So, yeah, Howard and I have known each other for 47 years. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> and there's a big birthday coming up for you, Howard, isn't there? I got the big eight oh and uh, thirty days to the big eight oh. You've been following me daily. Uh, I've been I've been really enjoying the posting and trying to remember uh, some of these details. They're, and they're chapter headings, so either a book or a documentary, something's going to come out of it. It has to. Well, I mean, we've talked in the past, and you know almost everybody that has influenced my life from humanistic psychology movement and Gene Houston and Ram Dass and Eslin and so many fantastic things. I, I had no idea you were either interested or involved in those things. Well, before I became a clinical social worker, I was involved in the humanist psychology movement. And way before I became a therapist, I was going to things, you know, different meetings and seminars. And then I was at Eslin years before I got into therapy. Wonderful. Wonderful. What years might that have been when you were at Eslin? Well, I was at Eslin around... 1976, I think, and Tim Galway was there who wrote The Inner Book of Tennis. 
my word, we were almost there at, at the same time. It's unbelievable. Uh, I was there with uh, John Lilly and with uh, Stan and Christina Groff. Right. And with um, uh, uh, Leonard. Uh, my goodness. What a, what a time. What a time. What a time. So I've been a, a Buddhist and a nudist and a hippie myself. So Did you commune? Excuse me? Did you live on communes? No, well, I went to Woodstock. That was the extent of the nudity. So, well, 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 well. <laughs> so let's talk about your history of improv and starting out with uh, David Shepard. And uh, was that your was it your introduction to David that got you into improv? Or tell me about the background a bit. Yeah, uh, it it gets intense and focused uh, through David, but I, it really begins with a street theater company that I just found called the Off Center Theater of New York, run by the incredible uh, late Tony McGrath and his amazing wife, Abigail Rosen McGrath. And uh, we did street theater. Their idea was, look, only rich people go to the theater, so we have to bring the theater to the poor people. So we got a, a couple of vehicles, and we went around the slums of New York City and uh, performed on the streets uh, using uh, old stories with improvisational formats. So uh, today we're doing Jack and the Beanstalk, and uh, who do you want to be? You, know, you want to be the giant, the woodchopper, or the wolf this day? And so you got to play the different characters, and if you're doing the Pied Piper and you're the mayor of, of Hamlin, then you're playing the mayor of New York, and uh, you, you you smile and you lie, you smile and lie about everything. So no scripts. Right. Follow the scenario. You know the story. Uh, no scripts. Follow the scenario. Make sure you you know start where you're supposed to and end where you're supposed to, and in the middle have a great time. And that's what we did. We begged for money on the streets of New York, and then I found David. Oh, in the newspaper, yeah. What time period is that when you were roving the streets of New York providing theater for the people? <laughs> there was a period of uh, almost a uh, 10-year duration in the mid-60s, uh, right on through the, through the 70s. Uh, uh, part of it included uh, wife number one, and the second part <laughs> included wife number two. So it's expanded a period of time. Uh, and, and then David was in, in the mix of all. Of all of that. So uh, I, I credit it to Street Theater with Abigail and Tony McGrath of the Off Center Theater. Uh, they're worth a big look-see. If you want to talk to Abby, she's still with us. Thank goodness. Oh, really? Yeah. That's wonderful. Well, we play a game in the classes. I teach a fairy tale game that uh, has a basic storyline. But the last time we did Little Red Riding Hood, Grandma was sipping a martini when the wolf came in. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. All our our style of improvisation then was just say if you're the villain, say three bad things like, uh, "Come on, Pittsburgh, beat the Yankees," you know. Oh no, you know. So you see, say three terrible things, and the audience hates you immediately. <laughs> well, I'm uh, going to ask Michael to help me with this one, but wasn't David when he went to Chicago? Didn't he have the idea of bringing theater to the people? Wasn't that that was his original intention. He wanted to do theater 
with the steelworkers and the stockyards. He wanted them to get on top of tables and do stories about the travails of their lives. And that wasn't exactly what they wanted to do. They didn't want David in the stockyards or the steel mills. And um, it was just, you know, serendipity that he met Paul Sill and fell in with those group of people at the University of Chicago. So what was it like when you first met David? Was it immediately simpatico or? In, in a strange Abbott and Costello kind of way, because um, I, uh, we were complete opposites, right? I'm a, uh, um, what am I? I'm, I'm a, a welfare kid, a fatherless welfare kid, um, the Brooklyn Jewish communist football player, uh, uh, weightlifter, jock, uh, political activist, and uh, uh, high school dropout. <laughs> That's me. <laughs> and, and I'm weighing 260 pounds, something like that. And David is this tall, uh, almost aristocratic kind of dude. Uh, and uh, my first feeling... Uh, had to be, had to have been. Wait a minute, what's this white guy doing with the, <laughs> with these ideas? Uh, he was he was the to me the ultimate wasp kind of dude with the ultimate wasp background. And how did he come to um, these things? I was uh, 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 taken aback because of uh, his background, you know, and. It turns out that we were the polar ends of, of, of that birthright, but we were like the polar ends of a magnet. We did really good things together. We were drawn together by each other's skills and, and uh, passions. And uh, I was uh, a dozen years younger than David, 14 years younger, I think. So he was an uncle daddy kind of type to me. And uh, I guess all the all the great teachers, with the with the exception, well, no, no, I shouldn't say that. Uh, father figures have been important to me as my teachers, and uh, David was kind of like that for sure. He was a father figure to Michael as well. Yeah, yeah, very much uh, so. I I, I want to test you. I'm going to test you now, Margaret. Okay. Mm -hmm. uh, do you recognize this? Is that is that the Canadian Improv Games? Oh. No, is it Zeus? Uh, I can't quite recognize it. Sorry, put it back a little bit. Let's see. Is it Improv School? No. Oh, I, I'm not going to tease you any longer. Okay. This is a symbol of Gene Houston. This is oh, the... Oh, of course. Yeah. The Cathedral of Sharks. This is the drumanon that we created together. Yeah. And you, you, you created a song together as well. Oh, we created many, many songs together. Here's one based on uh, our research into uh, how the brain works. Left brain, right brain. Get your head together, left brain, right brain. Get your head together. The left brain tells you what the eye can see, teaches you to read the one, two, threes. Left brain helps you structure your day. If you didn't have a left brain, you couldn't say that the right brain paints pictures. Right brain loves the Right brain, dream, scripture, right brain, loves glory, right brain, left brain. So we write things like that. Yes. Beautiful. So, and she's at the UN now, isn't she? 
I hope so. <laughs> they, they sure need some shaking up. They, they sure do. Waking up and taking up, and uh, Jean takes people up. She does. She's an elevator of people. Um, but that's that's a whole other story. Let's back to David. So David and I begin experimenting uh, in every conceivable way in every conceivable place. Uh, the idea of democratizing theater, making it so that people can create wherever they are uh, about the things that they care about, and that was the driving passion behind it uh, at, at the from the very beginning and to the very. And it's, it's always been about how can we co-create something that we're interested in together. Now, were you involved in the radio show that, that Michael called in on? You bet. I was part of the team at WRVR Riverside Radio. Welcome to the Responsive Scene, the show that you create. You're on the air. What do you want to play tonight? Hello. Who do I have on the phone right now? Hello? Oh. Yeah. What's your name? My name is Michael. Hey, Mike, you want to play? Oh, yeah, 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 I do. Okay, what do you want to be? What do you want us to be? Well, I want to do the scene about a pizza guy who delivers a pizza to the wrong address and the woman is on a strict diet. And, I uh, love it. Okay, hey, Penny, you want to do this for them? Sure, I'll try it. So yeah, that's no. what we do. <laughs> Margo, that's exactly how I, we met Michael on oh. the air. That was the responsive scene. The responsive scene was a variety of formats on the radio. One of them was called uh, West uh, 13 West 89th, the building of a thousand dreams. Uh, I think that's where we met, West 89th Street, something like that. And so we had this uh, soap opera that took, an improvised soap opera that took place in this mythical building. And now let's go into apartment 4A, where the homosexual couple is at it again. And so we'd improvise this mythical place on the air. And I had some crazy ideas back then. I preceded Howard Stern with naked radio. I got naked and I did radio. (laughs) 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 uh, We did a a silent spot for some crazy reason. We thought we'd improvise something in silence. So we did card tricks on the radio that you would hear the cards shuffle and things like that uh, we, uh, we would juggle on the radio <laughs> <laughs> a series, we showed a, a Charlie Chaplin film festival on the radio and so we experimented with that. what what could we could do on the radio uh, with the audience uh, allowing them first to tell us what they want us to play and then allowing them to redirect the scene and then ultimately allowing them to join us on the air. Uh, so we did that, and it was amazing, and I can't believe it hasn't been done again. Michael, how come it hasn't been done again? That's, uh, that's a question that still needs to be answered, because this was done in 1972, and you know when people first heard the clip, the documentary, this is great, this is wonderful, and you would think with the internet and podcasts and web things and Actually, one of my former students pitched me an idea with all these virtual games online. Why don't you have an improv virtual game where you choose a location, the characters, and you're all doing stuff and creating objects. And it's, it's a great idea. I don't have the technical skills, but someone should be doing that. I've got enough. Yeah. We'll call it Zoomprov. <laughs> Zoomprov. 
Yeah. And with that, we can zoom in on the characters, the characteristics, the tools, the weapons that they carry. So zoom allows us to go into the mind of the players and into the uh, depths of the scenario. How's that for zooming, yeah. Bob? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, you know, I always thought the beauty of responsive scene was its simplicity, where you, the audience calls in with a who, what, where scene, and you can either play in it or you can direct it. And you gave the guidelines freeze back in time, ahead of time, switch characters, locations, there you go, go. So, can't be oh, simple. By the way, I, before I forget this, Michael, I, I did that uh, time jump. Um, oh, yes. Uh, uh, with, no, with, with, with Katie, and it kind of blew her mind. Uh, really? yeah, Michael suggested uh, that I do a time jump, uh, take somebody 10 years into the future. And uh, it's pretty confrontational what, uh, what the story you have to tell yourself about 10 years in the future. The first thing is, when do you wake up? What time during the day? Where do you wake up? And is anybody besides you when you wake up 10 years from now? Uh, and so uh, you have to create this story about yourself. It was very effective, Michael. Thank you for that. Yes, it blows the minds of my high school and college students. And, uh, and as I told you, you know, David did this thing in Chicago. We got people to play themselves as an elderly person, and they froze. Uh, some either did a stereotypical old person or just... Couldn't conceive, but gee, I wonder what I'm going to be like when I'm 70, 80, or 90. You know, I bet you I'll be awesome. No, they, I guess they can't see how someone, you know, being, I mean, I, I can't believe you're 80 because you're still incredibly vibrant. Yes, I, yes it, it, it appears, it, uh, by all appearances, <laughs> by all appearances, I'm going to live as long as I want to. So keep okay. it interesting, you guys, okay? Okay. So you you stayed in New York. Now you were traveling. You were traveling in Esalen and around the world, country, and then you met David. Did you stay you together? Did you ever go to Chicago together, or was it just New York and Canada? Uh, no, we went to Los Angeles together for the Olympics, where we did the Improv Olympics on the Santa Monica Pier, sandwiched between the Frisbee Olympics and the Skateboard Olympics. We demonstrated the Improv Games. And we uh, we made up three teams, one from Mexico, one from Canada, and one from the U.S., and we played. And uh, it was uh, a demonstration sport for us at that time. And uh, again, it was uh, uh, way, way before its time, and it was wonderful. Also, at that time, we did what we're doing right now. This is 19... I don't know. When were we, when were we at the Olympics, Michael? We went to L.A. in 1984. So in 1984, we have what is called slow scan video in which we can be in remote locations like we are right now and improvise together, see each other on video. This is slow scan. It's eight seconds for a green to arise, but at least I could improvise with you at the bar while Michael is in the gallery and I'm in the theater. That's how advanced we did this improv stuff. Do you do you remember that, Michael? That, that you have a memory of? It? I have a vague memory because I didn't go to L.A. with you guys. Oh, when you... Right, 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 right. Um, that was extraordinary. That's how uh, 
ahead of the time we were in doing that. Right now, the three of us could do an improvisation together. And that's what we tried to do in 1984 with the technology then at hand. It was a wonderful experiment. And so David and I continued to experiment with using improvisation wherever, however we could, with video, without video, in, in indoors or outdoors, everywhere. That's so awesome. That'd be a great film to see. Where is it? <laughs> Michael has it in the archives, I'm sure, somewhere. There's a ton of videotape, and I have it. Michael, I have several dozen half-inch, reel-to-reel, black-and-white videotapes shot from New York that I don't know what the hell to do with. Didn't we just have a discussion 20 minutes ago how I'm done with improv? <laughs> <laughs> I put up the rest, the tapes were the last. I got the Paul and Dave tape. It's done. It's over. It's you and Asner. Surely there must be improv fledglings up there in Hamilton. We would love <laughs> to go through Howard Jerome's <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'll clone your ass somehow. Okay, well, I, I got it. I mean, you know, Golding now's going to take care of Howard stuff, and then Asner stuff, and then Alder stuff, and just pass me around. <laughs> I like a piece of meat. That's what I say. So, <laughs> so where was Asner with you? Uh, I had no association with Asner. Uh, it's, it's all Michael's. Take it away, buddy. Well, Asner was involved with the Playwrights Theater Club with David. That went from 53 to 55. He was not part of Compass because uh, he wanted to be a real actor. It was just make up stories without a script. So he headed off to New York. But over the years, uh, Ed, along with some other people like Alan Alda, would finance some of David's projects. Um, and of course, we let, uh, remain lifelong friends. So my association with Ed is I first encountered him a few times when I was a teenager in New York, then didn't see him for like 35 years or so. And then we reconnected in Holyoke, Massachusetts for David's 90th year celebration. We did it six months before David's actual 90th birthday because the doctors told us he wasn't going to make it to 90. Fooled them, didn't he? Uh, but when Ed and I reconnected, it's like, where do you live now? L.A. I'm in L.A. too. We should get together. And we've been really close friends ever since. So see him all the time out here. Um, speak to him. He's actually off to Philly now to do his one-man show about a man and his prostate. I saw that show. It was incredible. What a what an energizer bunny he is, like you, Howard. I love your attitude. I, I regret I have no relationship to him whatsoever, and I regret that. That would be, that would have been wonderful. Uh, what I do want to say is, in the early days at the Space for Innovative Development, uh, this is that uh, amazing building that housed extraordinary artists of every variety. Uh, are you familiar with that space, uh, Margo? No. Uh, on the ground floor with the Alvin Nikolai dancers. You ever hear of them? No. I've heard of Alvin Ailey, but not Alvin Nikolai. 
Nikolai was a revolutionary uh, force in the dance world. Also in that building, another, uh, several other dance companies. One was called the Murray Lewis Dance Company. The other was the Multigravitational Dance Troupe. They were dedicated to getting off the ground. No dancers on the ground in this company. Wow. They were, they were preparing to go to space, I guess. But also in that building were uh, video artists and jazz artists and David Shepard and myself and... Um, the first videotape machines that came out came into that building. And yeah, David and I were the second people to get our hands on one of those things so that we could go into the streets of New York and tell the real story of the real people, what's going on in your neighborhood. So we were very excited to make those videotapes wherever we could because we really thought that the monopoly that the then three networks had over information could finally be broken. We could broadcast these things in local community centers so people could see themselves, hear themselves, and uh, solve problems and dream together. It was very exciting. I, uh, I bet it was. Now, were these in lower Manhattan or all over Manhattan? I went, for example, I went to the South Bronx to Kelly Street Brownstone. That was a community center for disadvantaged black youth. And it was a, a kind of an oasis from the uh, violence and the crap that was going on around them. And things were being taught, art was being made. And I came in with a video project and uh, it was glorious because it was revolutionary. It was so way back then. What, we can make our own movies, our own television shows, tell our own stories, you know, reveal our own news? Holy cow! And show it in the community center? Wow. It was very exciting way back when. Uh, I also saw, uh, through David's uh, genius um, at the Space for Innovative Development, we were working with disadvantaged youth from an organization called HAI, Hospital Audiences Incorporated, which basically meant these are kids in prison release programs, parole programs, drug rehab programs, etc. And instead of uh, doing that kind of community service, they come to us and uh, we give them an experience of some kind. So uh, just two scenes uh, I want to tell. One was uh, of some morose young boy who was uh, sitting on the curb bemoaning life and what it did to him uh, when the audience had had enough. And they all stood up and they staged this silent parade and celebration right in front of his morose ass as he sat on the curbside. It was glorious. I had nothing to do with it. They had everything to do with it. It was great. Another example uh, was of this uh, young Puerto Rican boy. Uh, we were giving him an improvisation about going for a job. That's the improv. You're going for a job. And we sent him out for the job, and then we bring him back with a little time jump. It's, it's two hours later, you're talking to your girlfriend. Well, did you get the job? No, I didn't get the job because the man don't like Puerto Ricans. And we do the scene again. No, I didn't get the job because the man behind the desk didn't like whatever. And we do it again. No, I didn't get the job, but blah, 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 blah. And finally, David said, that's supposed to give him the job. So, <laughs> so we gave him a job. and we, we advanced him years in the future, you know, five years into the future. And suddenly... He bought a home for his mother. He married his girlfriend. He was a member of the community in good standing. His life exploded 
the possibilities of his life exploded because David gave him a make-believe job. It was wonderful. I think the possibilities, unlimited possibilities that you have in improvisational comedy can really carry over to helping people see possibility thinking in their life. And, and the fact that we're, you know, uh, proactive rather than reactive. We have a lot of reactors in our culture today, I think. Yeah, yeah I'm, I'm afraid we do. Um, I, I, the ultimate improv thing I've never been involved with. This, I don't know how much more time we have. Robert, do you, can you tell me? We have lots of time. This is going on all night. Be comfortable. You, are you serious? Well. All right. I'm going to take a bath. If you mean I should be comfortable, I'll, I'll take you to the okay. bathroom. Okay, all right. <laughs> Are people listening right now to this, people? No, but I really should try streaming t sometime. Maybe some other time we can stream a, a talk like this, Howard. Oh, so we can't give the audience uh, something to play, something to do uh, over the air right now. Not right now, but we can give them something to do while they're listening to us on their little podcast, streaming podcast. Well, sure. Michael, give, give the audience a location. We, we, we a location? Yeah. Uh, location would be a, um, let's say, a pool hall. Okay. Everybody who's listening to this, you're now in a pool hall. Okay. And uh, who's in this pool hall? Okay. Uh, let's, yeah. let's say it's a teacher with his students. It's the final day of their class. They want to do something fun. So they all decided to go to this pool hall. Okay. So everybody in the, who's listening to this, you're in the pool hall, and you are going to decide whether you are the teacher or the pupil, okay? And then we'll continue to play later on. So I, I think that's a good start. What do you think? Yeah. Yeah, okay. So uh, let's get back to uh, what we were talking about, Margaret. I think that uh, if we can get the audience to play with us, yes. to play characters, what I do um, uh one of the most recent things I've done with David, I'm jumping back and forth through time. So you can do that. Me. You can do it. Okay. Uh, David's research uh, in the game he called Life Play, which I uh, then saw uh, the, the magic of it, which is telephone improvisation, in which the audience or, or the, the caller is into a conference call, much like we are now, but no video. So that uh, in the anonymity of our voices, we can be whoever we want, wherever we want. And so the audience is invited or the caller is invited to give themselves a location. Where are you now? Who are you now? And David suggested that the listener, caller, uh, do a 360 so we can describe their environment. And so they can create this character and live in this environment. So I did the basic research with this work after David and uh, uh, who was it that created it together? Life Play was originally created by David and Carmen Deweese and yes. Chris Britt. And uh, then they brought us into it and we contributed our games. We had weekly conference calls. So Howard's calling it from Toronto, BLA. There were people from uh, Western Massachusetts. We had one woman from France. Uh, two of the players were blind. Um, it was wonderful. In a way, it was like a throwback to responsive scene. It was almost Very much so. Yeah, but, nice bookend. Yeah, everybody was a player. Everybody was a player, and I, and I was the facilitator, so to speak. Yeah. 
And so uh, and we researched that for almost two years, and then it uh, kind of morphed and transformed into what I believe will be its commercial success in what I'm calling the improv party line. Uh, a chance for you to be anyone you want to be, anywhere you want to be, doing anything you want with strangers who are going to become instant friends on the improv party line. And it can be pre-programmed. That's the great part of it. You can do it 24-7. That's the great part of it. You can themeize it. Thursday is about relationships. Friday is about politics. Saturday is about sports. Sunday is about community things. The thing could be themed 24-7, roboticized. I could do the voiceover or you could do the voiceover and the callers can call in. Insomniacs, somebody out there wants to play with you. <laughs> yeah. So it's possible now to uh, automate the process. You don't even need a facilitator anymore because we want to go from the few that we played with to a game, uh, not a game, but a conference call that I was in uh, two years ago, I think, with 700 men. It was the International Men's Summit. And a speaker would say something and give uh, us a question to respond to. And by the touch of a button, I was thrown into a room with four other guys, a chat room, and we discussed what the speaker had given us. And I said, my God, that's exactly the technology that we need to do this improvisational telephone game the technology exists the game is ready all we need is a media partner and get it done i forwarded this on to andy alexander at second city and i am awaiting a response from him it is now my semi-annual waiting for a response from andy <laughs> alexander to the improv party line because it should be his game his name i don't need anything out of it it's the game has been developed. It's ready to rock and roll to pick up a phone and improvise with somebody else in the world is a, a magical thing. That is certainly magical. I've been involved in a, a few of those little uh, attempts at doing something on a smaller scale. And I'm thinking it could be done Facebook live streaming. If you invited enough people. Uh, again, you, you don't want to see the players. Right, this but, one. right but you can yeah. get the voices in. Yeah, can you do a hundred voices, a thousand? Oh, I don't know that. Yeah, that's the issue. There, there are a few companies that do that. I, I, I basically did the research on there are a few organizations out there that have the technology, what they call a massive conference calls, <clears throat> and then chat room capabilities uh, and so you are given an instruction sent to your chat room after five ten minutes you are brought back to the main room where the speakers then say something magnificent give you another question to think about send you back into the chat room i was in a room with a guy from texas a guy from australia somebody from south america somebody from boston it was an amazing experience to talk about men's issues with strangers from all over the world and a perfect technology for the improv party line. That's great. Yeah. Well, I'm wondering if we might bring a close to our first session right now. Uh, we'll be back in a flash, okay?